and throws them onto the rug that I just vacuumed. And then he decides, after probably three hours later, to get up, go to the bathroom, and guess what he does? Leaves the toilet seat up. I don't see any problem with that. That sounds like a pretty good marriage to me. <laughs> Zach, tell me a little more. What are, what are your big concerns about this fight? Well, my mom and dad always taught me that I can't hit a girl. So that might be a pretty difficult part of this fight, but we'll just see what happens. <laughs> I know where he's going to be sleeping if I don't win. Ooh. Ooh. All right. So really quickly... Um, and remember, you're in a church, so if you lie, you will be struck by lightning. That's what happens. Raise your hand if you and your spouse have fought in the last month. It doesn't even have to be like a knockdown, drag out kind of thing, just a disagreement, even. You all are the worst liars I've ever seen. Okay, all right. Keep your hand up if you fought in the last week. This side tells the truth a lot better than that side does. Now, raise, keep your hand up if you fought on the way here today. Some of you are like, no, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't, but that's because we drove in separate cars. <laughs> like, okay, so let's, let's be honest for a second. Um, sometimes when you're married to someone, you fight, Right? I am a preacher, and my wife, therefore, is a preacher's wife, so Whitney and I have never fought, um, <laughs> because I, I never leave my dirty clothes right next to the hamper, and I never, ever put a dirty dish in the sink instead of the dishwasher, and uh, to this day, I have yet to spend more money than I'm supposed to on a budgeted week. Uh, <laughs> But, but I, as a couple, the last couple of months as we've been preparing for this series fight, I was talking with Zach and Abby. They've only been married for eight months, and Zach was like, man, I just don't get why everybody thinks this is so hard. Marriage isn't that big a deal. It's not that difficult. So after I knocked him out, um, he came to several minutes later, and I informed him that he would soon find out. Because he would soon find out that when the kids don't sleep and everyone's sleep-deprived, everything automatically becomes a bigger deal, and things that you didn't care about when you thought they were cute and you were newly in love, now several years down the road, you're sleep-deprived, and if they do it one more time, you might leave, right? And when you're newlyweds and you're poor and you're eating Easy Mac and everything is great because you just got each other, when you've been married for 15, 20 years, if they cook that meal one more time, it might be the end of it, Right? And all of a sudden, when the pressures of work get to be too much, when the bank account looks a little lower than you thought it might ever go, and you start to realize that being married is, is hard. When Whitney and I got engaged seven years ago, I started taking note of something really funny that was happening. And every guy I talked to, every married man I talked to, said some of the most negative, critical things about marriage that I ever could have imagined. And so the whole time these guys are talking about fighting with their wife and being disappointed in their marriage and things aren't always going their way, and I'm thinking, man, these guys are the worst husbands I've ever seen. And we've been married for six years now, and regularly I say to myself, Ben Stroop is the worst husband I've ever seen. Because when you stand on a stage like this one, and you've got the tux on and she's got the dress on, 
And you save for richer, for poorer, you're thinking in your head, yeah, I can deal with a used Mercedes, it's fine. And then you're in your 19th year of a, a Yugo, which isn't a car anymore, but that's the oldest thing I could think of. And you start to realize what, what poorer really meant. And when you save for sickness and in health, and you start to think, yeah, you know, I'll hold your hair back if ever you're not feeling well. And then you find out what reality is when sickness happens at your house. And you save for better or for worse. And you realize that you're like that guy in the Reader's Digest story who went to the preacher who married him and said, sir, you said for better or for worse, but she's much worse than when I took her. (laughs) And so I'm so excited to get to talk to you for these next three weeks about fight. Because when we talk about fight, the first week today, we're going to talk about fighting with each other in your marriage. But I want you to know that even though everyone in this room gets in a fight, and even though everyone in this room disagrees with their spouse, I'm a fight with this microphone. Even though everyone in this room, this is driving me crazy, everyone in this room gets in a fight. There's also other kinds of fights in our marriage. Next week, we're going to talk about fighting to defend our marriage, and we're going to talk about the outside forces that are going to come in and make married life difficult for you. And the week after that, we're going to talk about fighting to keep your marriage, and we're going to talk about fighting to love each other even more. So I'm so excited. I firmly believe that if you're here for the next three weeks and you apply the principles that that Scripture is teaching, not that Ben is teaching, but that we've learned through Scripture, that your marriage will be changed for the better. And I want to be very clear, we're, we're building up to these jokes about this fight that Zach and Abby are going to have, which is going to be epic in the third week, mind you. Um, we're building, but, but I want to be very clear that when we talk about fighting, we're talking about disagreements, and we're talking about uh, preference issues. We're not talking about physically fighting, and if your spouse is physically harming you, then this is not something that we're going to joke about. And if your spouse is physically harming you, I want to challenge you to seek help for them and for you, like, right now. Because they don't love you. And they're not in a place where they need to be married to you, and you need to do something about that pronto. And so after the service, if you're like, hey, I need to talk to you, then I'm going to know what it's about, and we're going to work on that together, and we'll put you in the place to find people who can help you with that. But when we talk about fight, we're talking more about the kind of fight like a friend of mine had a couple weeks ago where he said, my wife came to me in the middle of the fight on her hands and knees, crawling on the floor. And I was like, wow, how did, what, how? what did she say? And he said, she looked at me and said, get out from under that bed and come here and fight like a man. (laughs) And so today, as we talk about fighting with each other, our main goal, some of you are elbowing your spouse right now. I don't know what to think of that. (laughs) Like, that's you, like, whatever. Um, We're going to talk about how we fight with each other. And here's the thing, if you're not married, if you're a a widow, if you're forever alone, if you're single, if you're engaged, whatever it is, whatever stage of life you're in, this is important because this is about more than just your marriage, this is about every relationship you have because when you put two people in a room together, odds are at some point they're going to fight, they're going to disagree, they're going to argue. And so, so when we talk today about about the the root of our problems, we're going to talk a lot about our heart in this issue. And we're going to talk about our heart in the, in the fight. You see, I think for a lot of us, the biggest reason that we fight is because at least one of us in the marriage is a low-down, dirty, rotten, selfish jerk. And this is not the time to elbow your spouse, by the way. But I think if we're honest, maybe for some of us, 
the reason that we fight in our marriage is because there, in our marriage there are two low-down, dirty, rotten, selfish jerks. And they've said from the beginning that the only reason I'm in this is to get what I can get out of it. And so when they start thinking about why we're fighting, it's we're fighting because I only want what I want and I don't care what you want. Or we're fighting because I only care about me. And so for some of us, the first step we have to take, the first thing we have to do is we have to examine the biggest problem, which is our own heart, is just constantly focused on ourself and what it is that we want and where it is that we want to go and what it is that we want to do. In his book, People of the Second Chance, Mike Foster said that if you don't pull a problem by its root, you're going to spend your whole life trimming its branches. And so for us, the place we have to start is here in our heart. Is my heart focused on what's best for my family, what's best for the kingdom? Is my heart focused on others, or is my heart focused on how can I get what I want and just hardly kind of partly stay committed to this marriage thing? For some of us, the main question we might have to ask is, is the biggest problem with my marriage me? Don't ask your spouse that, just for the record. (laughs) It doesn't go very well (laughs) in my house, at least. (laughs) But maybe it's time for you to ask yourself that question. When we talk about marriage, I am very careful in my language that I choose. Uh, I made this commitment a long time ago, long before I ever knew Whitney, that I was going to be very careful in how I talked about my spouse. Because I hear far too many people refer to their wife as, I don't actually hear anyone do this, but like, except on TV, as like the old ball and chain or, or the old lady or, you know, any of those kind of terms. And so when I talk about marriage, when I talk about Whitney, I'm very careful not to talk about her in those kind of terms. Not because even though it was like, it would be jokingly, but because I'm very serious in how I view my wife and making sure that everyone else views Whitney in the same light. And even if I started talking about Whitney in those joking kind of terms, eventually my heart could possibly start to turn. And so I'm, I'm so careful that I rarely will even call Whitney like she or her because I want to be very careful to know that my language that I use about her is as important as the language I use to her. And so maybe this is for you a good place to start is to look in your heart and to look in the words that you use. And maybe this is a good reflection of where your marriage is. Maybe it's time for you to start thinking, I need to make my marriage better. Here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to know from from the next three weeks of fight. That if you follow these principles that we believe the Bible teaches about marriage, we believe that your marriage will be exponentially better if you put these into practice than it would if you don't. And I want to be clear. What's going to make your marriage exponentially better is not a different spouse. It's not going to get better if you leave this person and marry someone else. It's not going to improve anything. The way, the number one most important way for you to improve your marriage, to get the better marriage, to see the marriage that God has designed for you, is to understand that marriage is not for your happiness, it is for your holiness. The purpose of marriage is not for you to just be happy anytime you want. The purpose of marriage is for you to see how God wants you to live your life. But if you've been married for more than a week, you know that marriage is the combining of two very broken, very messed up people. And you know that what happens in a marriage is that two very broken, very messed up people get together and they bring all of their baggage and all of their scars and all of their wounds and they leave them in a room and they say, this is it. 
And you spend the rest of your life trying to unpack how that works. And so you look at this and you think, God, why was this your plan? Like, why, why did you make us so messed up? But it's clear from the, from the beginning, if you read the Bible, it's clear that God's plan all along was to use some of the most jacked up, controversial, weird people you've ever seen. If you read through the Bible for very long, you'll see that God uses the messed up people very often. If you read the story of Jonah, the guy who gets swallowed by the whale, Jonah ran away from God when God verbally told him to go somewhere. If you read the story of Gideon, who defeated an army of thousands with just 300 soldiers, you see that the entire time Gideon was trying to chicken out every way he could. If you read the story of of Paul, it's a guy who was killing people for believing in Jesus and then became the best missionary for Jesus there ever was. And so God continues to use some messed up people and some broken people in the most magnificent of ways. And so today, as as a group, we're going to study a story in what's called the Old Testament. It's in the first half of your Bible. It's what happens before Jesus comes to earth. It's the BC part of the Bible. And it's going to be the story of a guy named David. You might be familiar with David because David is the guy who beats Goliath the giant. He slays him with just a slingshot and a stone. And after he kills the giant, he becomes pretty popular in his hometown, home, home nation of Israel. And so he becomes popular in Israel, and he starts to kind of get this reputation. Well, the king of Israel, King Saul, isn't too happy with David's reputation. And so he starts to think of ways to kill him. Not only is he not too happy with his reputation, but he's not too happy with the fact that God's made it clear that David is going to be the next king, not Saul's son, Jonathan. So Saul is not David's biggest fan. But David eventually becomes king, and as David's becoming king, he marries one of Saul's daughters, a a lady named Michael. And so David's married to Michael, and they're living their life as a married couple, and David goes off to war. And they're fighting this war against a country called the Philistines. And the Philistines have done something that a lot of other nations have done to Israel over time. They've stolen the Philistines' Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is, long story short, this, this small box that God had them build that he would reside in amongst them as a people. We don't have time to get into all of what that means today, but it's a very important box to the Israelite people. It's the most important thing they own. So every time there's a war, every time there's a battle, the other nation wants to steal it because it matters most to the Israelites because God built it. So in the midst of the battle, David steals the Ark of the Covenant back, and Israel wins the war. And Israel's marching home triumphantly, right? Israel's coming home, having beaten Philistia one more time. Israel's coming home to celebrate. And so what happens when you come home from war victorious is your nation throws you a party, right? And there's a big parade. Imagine with me that come February of this year, after the Bengals win the Super Bowl, we all go downtown, right? And we chant Who Day on the streets, and the parade comes through. This is is what's happening to David. If you're a Steelers fan, I'm sorry, you don't have that same imagining right now. I know, you've done it six times before. Whatever, I don't care. Um, So this party, this parade, this celebration's happening, Okay. And David is really excited about what he's done. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says this. It says, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Did you catch that? He was dancing, okay? And he was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And so David comes into town celebrating his victory. 
And the writer of 2 Samuel tells us that he's wearing a linen ephod. There are some people who would tell you, this means David danced in his tidy whities That's probably not true. Um, what David was dancing in, we would probably more likely refer to as like our lounge clothes. Um, at our house, we call them play clothes. You, some of you wear them to Walmart all the time. <laughs> I don't know if it's you guys, but it's somebody. <laughs> so it was basically a, like an extended robe t-shirt kind of thing that would gone like midway down to his thigh. And it would have given him more freedom to dance, but it wasn't a very dignified outfit for a king to be wearing as the entire nation is watching him. And it especially wasn't a very dignified outfit for a king to be wearing as he's dancing down the road celebrating the victory. And so as you might imagine, the daughter of the former king, the wife of the current king, gets embarrassed. I don't know. Uh, I've heard there are husbands that embarrass their wives publicly. I, it never happens to me. <laughs> um, okay, none of you do. That's fine. <laughs> but, so as, in verse 16, Michael gets pretty embarrassed, right? And this is what happens. It says in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And catch this right here. She despised him in her heart. She's mad. She's embarrassed. She's angry. Can you believe? What are you doing? People can see you. And you're dancing like that? You're acting like that? And so this is how the fight starts. She's mad. She's embarrassed. She's angry. He's really kind of hurt her. And so the party continues, but, but Michael, she's stewing at home. She sees the parade, she sees what's coming, and she's just mad. And so they bring the ark into the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And we're going to skip ahead to verse 20 because there's something interesting that happens there. David gives out cake and food to everybody, and the party continues, and it just keeps going and going and going. But in verse 20, it says, and David returned to bless his household. So David swings the door open of the house. He's, he's been on a high all afternoon, right? The entire nation's chanting his name. Everybody's proud of him. Everybody's shocked by him. And he comes home, and he opens the door, and he says, Daddy's home, king of the castle, right? Like he says, Honey, I'm home. And he expects Michael to come falling at his feet. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Do you want to know what happened at this house today? That's not really what she says. Um, but she came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants' female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And so Michael sees him come in the door. And how does she respond? Huh, looks like we had a great day today, didn't it? And this is, Michael teaches us our very first principle about how to fight fairly. I, I, I took these from uh, one of my heroes, Dave Stone, in his sermon on how to fight fair. But I, I wanted to make it clear, if you're a note taker, if you're a writer downer of things, there are three things here, which they tell me is the magical number that you'll remember. But I want to challenge you to write these down. These are three principles in how to fight fair in your marriage. Okay, the first is to deal with conflict quickly but kindly. And Michael gets the first one right. She comes in as soon as she has a chance to talk with him in private, you'll notice. Privately in their own home, she has a chance to deal with this conflict, and she deals with it quickly. But if you read that verse again, you can tell that it's dripping with sarcasm. 
And if you read that verse, you can tell that all of the disdain that was building up in her heart is coming out. And if you read that verse again, you can see that there's some real anger and angst coming from Michael in that moment. And this is how the fight starts, is with Michael dealing with it quickly, but with a lot of anger. It's with Michael dealing with it quickly, but sarcastically. Dealing with it quickly, but snarky. And it's the easiest thing to do when when a fight's coming, isn't it? It's to not listen to what your spouse is saying, but to start thinking about your next counterline. I like to refer to it as throwing verbal haymakers because you're thinking, well, you're saying that, but what I'm about to say is going to win this fight. I, I heard a preacher once who said, a real husband never hits either with his fists or with his words. But David didn't listen to that advice either. And in verse 21, he says to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father, because a word of advice, bringing the in-laws into it is never a good way to keep a fight going, okay? Uh, Just just David taught taught you this. I heard from other people it, it ends poorly for you. Who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And he says, so I'll celebrate before the Lord. But that's not the worst verbal haymaker that David tries to throw. Because here in verse 22, he says, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But check this line out here. He says, but the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I'll be held in honor. And so he looks at her and he says, yeah, you know those ladies you were talking about? The ones that I embarrassed myself in front of? They liked it. They liked what they saw. You know? Like, that's what David's doing in this moment, is he's trying every which way he can to make sure that she knows, oh yeah, I heard you, but I'm going to win this fight. And David teaches us the second principle of how to fight fair, and it's to deal with conflict thoroughly, but not vindictively. Deal with the conflict at hand. Talk about what's going on. Talk about what matters, but don't try to just win the fight. My friend Kevin Jack from Crosspoint in Maysville says this every time he talks to people about fighting, is he says, parents, you can win parents, husbands, you can win the fight, but most of the time your trophy is going to be the couch. When you sleep on it at night later, okay, like, man, you guys will get it another time, okay? You can win the fight, but most of the time your trophy is going to be the couch. And you see, you see it here when David exhibits this, exhibits this in the fight, that all he's worried about is trying to make her see his point. He was getting attention. He was getting the praise. He was getting what he wanted. Why did she care that he was embarrassed? But when your goal is just to win the fight, when your goal is to get what you want out of it, you're going to see very quickly that your marriage isn't going to grow, and that the exponential exponentially better marriage that God promises you isn't going to happen if all you're concerned about is winning. And so when you do things like like David does, when you bring up the past, when you bring in family, when you use words like always and never, what you're doing in that moment is you're making things a lot more difficult. Probably the hardest thing to do in a fight in marriage is to forgive. But I can guarantee that for most of you, if you read a Bible verse at your wedding, it was probably from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And one of the lines that the person who read that verse read was that love keeps no record of wrongs. And for some of us, that, that doesn't happen. 
But one of the keys to fighting fairly is to forgive because love forgets. And this is the saddest part of the story of David and Michael. It happens in verse 23. It says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And what this means is that that fight that day was so bad that most likely Michael and David never shared a bed again. That they couldn't come around to settling their differences to the point where they could get together and, and experience the blessing of God through, through the birth of a child. They never got over their fight to the point where David slept on the couch or in a different room the rest of their marriage, and Michael never had a child because they could never get over the fight. And that leads us to our third principle of fighting fairly, which is deal with conflict honestly, but forgive. Tell them how they hurt you. Tell them what's going on. Tell them how things can get better, but don't continually say, you always, you never, you will, you won't. Just deal with conflict honestly, but forgive. If there's no forgiveness in your marriage, then there can be no healing. If there's no willingness to look past the faults, then things will never get better. If words like always and never are the ones we use, then they'll always be the ones that define our marriage. You've probably heard the advice, never go to bed angry. But it's actually solid advice. It comes from the scriptures. It comes from uh, the Proverbs. This says, never let the sun go down on your anger. And it's a principle that Whitney and I have put into practice. So one time it took us two weeks to go to sleep, but finally we made it. <laughs> but the truth of it is, there might come a time where it's easier to say, I'm mad at you, but I love you, and go to sleep and work on it the next day. But the principle is more about make sure that your anger doesn't boil. Make sure that your anger doesn't build and build and build. I read this story of a, of a couple who was having a particular time of difficulty, and a counselor in a terrible piece of advice said, why don't you write down all of the flaws you find in each other? Go home tonight and sit, sit together and write down everything about the other person that makes you angry. And so the wife, she was, she was ready to go, and she sits down in the chair, and her husband sits down in the chair across from her, and she just starts writing furiously, like smoke coming off the pen. And she's looking at him. She's laughing. She's, she's writing everything she can think of, remembering every detail. And the husband's doing the same, and he's looking at her, and he's staring at her, and he's writing and writing and writing. And they finally decide they're both done writing. And, the, and his, the wife says to the husband, she says, let me see your list. And they hand them over at the same time. And the wife reads the first line in the list, and it says, I love you. And she goes down to number two, and it says, I, I love you. Number three, number four, number five, all of them just over and over again say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she's desperate. No, no, give me my back, give me my back, give me my list back. Please, 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 give it back, give it back. And he he starts to read it and he sees all of the flaws, all of the pain that he's caused. And in this moment, the husband is the perfect embodiment of the most important thing in the world to us. And that's Jesus. Because in this moment, he showed us who Jesus was. Because Jesus could look at each of us and he could say, I see all of your flaws, I see all of your weaknesses, I see all of your struggles, and I could write every single one of them down. But instead he says, I'll choose something different. And 
what I'll choose is to just simply write down, I forgive you. So even though your spouse has hurt you, even though your marriage has caused a struggle, maybe today's the day you say, today's the day I forgive you because Jesus forgave me. And so here in just a moment, Zach and Abby are going to play and and the guys are going to come with with a piece of bread and a cup. And we do this together every week because every week we want to take this moment to remind ourselves that Jesus said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood poured out for you. And that even though we have a long list of flaws, even though it never seems to end, the things that we do and we have and we are that are wrong, Jesus wrote down one word on our list, and that was forgiven. And so as you take this today, remind yourself that you, in fact, have been forgiven.